Honor of God's Word. This morning we're going to look at the Gospel according to John, chapter 6, verses 25 through 35. Continuing on with our Advent theme of why Christ came, this morning we're going to see that Christ came to give us life. John 6, 25-35 When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did You come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. For the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we now ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. may be seated. Henry Scrugel once said, The soul of man has in it a raging and inextinguishable thirst. I wonder if any of you can relate to that. A soul with a raging and inextinguishable thirst. Uh, The truth is, every single one of us are hedonists in the core of our being. Everybody longs to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. And even more than that, everybody is relentlessly pursuing happiness, however they go about it. Blaise Pascal made this comment many years ago about human nature. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So the motive of every man and woman is this pursuit after happiness because this is the longing within us that we cannot extinguish. Yet here's the kicker. The happiness that we so desperately long for always seems to be out of reach. 
And just about when we think we've grasped happiness and we have all of it, it's like grasping the wind and it goes right through our fingertips. In Ravi Zacharias' book, Cries of the Heart, he talks about the great French author of the 19th century, Guy de Passamont, or Guy de Passant, something like that. Rene, you know French. How's it pronounced? You'd have to see it. I couldn't read my writing anyway. So, uh, the great French author of the 19th century named Guy something. <laughs> uh, Guy wrote many short stories, and within 10 years, he rose from obscurity to fame. His material possessions manifested a life of affluence a yacht in the Mediterranean, a large house on the Norman coast, and a luxurious flat in Paris. It was said of Guy that critics praised him, men adored him, and women worshipped him. Yet at the height of his fame, he went insane, a condition brought on many believed by sexually transmitted disease. On New Year's Day in 1892, he tried to cut his throat with a letter opener, and he lived out the last weeks of his life in a private asylum on the French Riviera. After months of mindless utterances and debilitating pain, he died at the age of 42. Guy penned his own epitaph. He said, I have coveted everything and taken pleasure in nothing. What a statement. I've coveted everything and taken pleasure in nothing. I think that guy's story actually surprises us, whether we're a Christian or we're not a Christian, because we often assume we have this subconscious presupposition that if we just had a little more money, if we just had a little more fame, if we just had a little more success, if we just had a little more applause, then we would be happy. Even as Christians, we can believe that. It's the just a little more lie. If I just had just a little more, then finally I would be content. Wouldn't it be a tragedy? Spend your whole life climbing the ladder of success only to get to the top and to find out that the ladder was leaning up against the wrong wall. It's amazing how many rich and famous people climb the ladder of success they achieve it all and they don't find happiness there. And they wonder what happened. And some of them do go insane. Some of them turn to drugs. Others turn to whatever they can find. Well, during this Advent season, uh, we once again want to talk about the coming of Christ. Uh, last week we mentioned that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And we saw very simply but profoundly, man is lost. But Jesus came to seek the lost. And He not only came to seek the lost, but He came to save the lost. And this morning, I want to press in a little more. And I want to say that Jesus came to save us. And we call that the Gospel. But specifically this morning, I want to define the Gospel as coming to Jesus for the ultimate satisfaction of our souls. Let me say that again. Coming to Jesus for the ultimate satisfaction of our souls. And what I mean by that, He's not just coming to save us from hell so we can go to heaven when we die. He is doing that. But even more than that, 
He has come to give us life, to give us fulfillment, to give us satisfaction. So in the deepest recesses of our souls, we really are content. We really are, very simply, happy. And I want to arrive at that conclusion this morning by considering three points. The first point is the desperate pursuit of satisfaction. Second point is the deceptive illusion of satisfaction. And then the third point is the divine source of satisfaction. So first, the desperate pursuit of satisfaction. Look at John 6, verse 25. When they, and that's referring to the crowds, found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, this is what you need to realize. Uh, They have followed Jesus across the sea of Capernaum. But this is not the first time that they have crossed the sea to come to Jesus. Back up to the beginning of John 6, if you will, and look at the first two verses. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following Him because they saw the sign that He was doing on the sick. So a little earlier, He was crossing over the Sea of Galilee and they crossed Him over the Sea of Galilee because they saw the signs that He was doing. Uh, the Gospel of John never uses the word miracle. John always uses the word sign. This is what D.A. Carson writes. He says, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. So Jesus doesn't just do miracles that show off His power. He does signs. And if people have eyes to see, they will see that the signs are pointing to the fact that Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one who can satisfy their souls. And John says the people saw the signs, but as we'll see in a minute, that, that means they only saw the miracles. They didn't see what the signs pointed to. So at the beginning of John 6, they, they follow Jesus across the Sea of Galilee. And then on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus feeds the 5,000. You may recall, He has them all sit down in, in green pastures. And like a good shepherd, He feeds the sheep and they're all satisfied. And then we read in verse 13, John 6, So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets and with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. The Old Testament said there was a prophet like Moses and he was going to come. And they're saying, wow, this is probably an indication that he's the prophet we've been waiting for. And then verse 15, this is fascinating. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. They were going to force Him to be king. Uh, There are huge political ramifications here. 
Um, if you can provide for the people, if you can take care of the people, then you're their man. They want you to be their king, uh, their president, their dictator. Um, you don't care as long as he can feed you day in and day out. And they were going to make Jesus king by force, but he is not going to be that kind of king. He's not going to be a king who just takes care of people's needs whenever they want. So Jesus intentionally withdraws. And then we read in 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boats, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And then we read in verse 22, And the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. Notice how John points that out. There was, there was only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So here they are seeking Jesus across another, another sea. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And this question always makes me laugh because it is not the right question. <laughs> the question is not, when did you get here? The question is, how did you get here? Because there was only one boat and Jesus did not get into the boats. And of course, we laugh because we know that Jesus got there by walking on water, but they still don't recognize who Jesus is. Uh, they just see Him as a prophet who can take care of their needs. And then verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So at this point, kind of scratch our heads a little bit because Jesus is saying, you're not seeking Me because you saw the signs. And earlier John said that they were seeking Jesus because they did see the signs. And liberals like to say, ah, here we have another inconsistency in the Bible. We don't have an inconsistency. Jesus is saying, you don't see the true meaning of the sign. That I am the Messiah. That I'm the one that can meet your deepest needs. All you're seeing is a person who can perform miracles and give you another loaf of bread. Another meal. Now, it's not wrong to pray for your daily bread. Jesus told us to pray for our daily bread. But something is wrong if we're just praying for our daily bread. And what are the disciples doing? They are following Jesus across land and sea. Land and sea. They're seeking Him. But why are they seeking Him? Because He can take care of all their material possessions. Because He can give them the new iPhone that they want. Or the new Xbox. Or the new pair of shoes. Or the new whatever. And we laugh. 
But I'm just putting it in our context. People seek Jesus all the time because He's like their genie in the bottle. If they just rub it enough, if they just pray to Him enough, then Jesus will give them what they want. So they're seeking Jesus. But are they seeking Jesus for the right reason? Often they're not seeking Jesus for the right reason. And even as Christians, we have to be careful as to why we're going after Jesus. That brings us to our second point. The deceptive illusion of satisfaction. The deceptive illusion of satisfaction. And once again, often we just think that a few more trinkets will make us happy. We don't realize that, yeah, we'll, we'll be happy for, for about a month and then it'll fade away. I remember many, many years ago, I was talking to the owner of a, of a painting company and it's quite a company. He actually owns several painting companies and, and I was commenting how nice his car was and he said, yeah, you know, it was a big deal when I first got it, but now it's not a big deal at all. Now it's a mess and I, I don't even care. It's amazing how quickly we get something and we're all excited and then just a little while later, you know what, it's a, it's a big deal and actually it's falling apart now and it's rusting out and you know what, it, it, it doesn't even matter. We need to be careful. Notice what Jesus says in verse 27. Do not labor for food that perishes. Don't labor for food that perishes. And how many people in the world laboring for food, possessions that just perish, that leave them empty in the end. And if we're not careful, we can get on the same treadmill. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't labor for a food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to Him. Don't labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. And eternal life is not just life that goes on forever and ever. That's not eternal life only. Eternal life is fulfilling life, satisfying life, a happy life in the core of our being. That's what Jesus is offering us. Jesus isn't rebuking the disciples because they want food. He's rebuking the disciples because they're settling for so little when God wants to give them so much. C.S. Lewis stated it so well. He said, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoic and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think that's the message of John 6 in a nutshell. Jesus saying to us, you are far too easily pleased. You are settling for so little. When I want to give you so much, you, you just want another meal. I want to give you life in all its abundance. Why are you coming to me? 
If you would realize who I was, you would see that I could give you so much more. What a rebuke. We are far too easily pleased. Another deceptive illusion related to this whole issue of satisfaction that I think we need to understand is that satisfaction is not always within our grasp. It's not always within our grasp. It's a gift from God. Verse 28, we read, Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? He just said, Don't work for food that perishes, but for food that leads to eternal life. And then what do they say? Tell us what we need to do. See, they, they think it's within their grasp. That there's just, just tell us what we can do. They don't realize there's nothing they can do because it's a gift from God. Turn to Ecclesiastes, if you will. It's in the middle of the Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 2.24 and 25. The writer says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? That's very important. Apart from God, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? Turn ahead to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19. See the same theme. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil, this is the gift of God. Notice, that's all the gift. Not only to have wealth and possessions, but the power to enjoy them. Verse 20, For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps them occupied with joy in his heart. God does. God keeps them occupied with joy. Here's the flip side. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lays heavily on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet... God does not give him power to enjoy them. That is awesome. God can give a man wealth and possessions, honor so that he lacks nothing that all he desires, and yet he doesn't have the ability to enjoy them. Which is why the wealthy can climb the ladder of success. They can get to the top so that everybody's looking up to them and praising them and admiring them. And yet they realize they're up at the top and they have everything except one thing. Joy. For some reason, they're not able to enjoy all that they have. And that's because God has not blessed them with the ability to enjoy it. We need to remember, God gives us everything we have, including the ability to enjoy what we have. So we have to watch out 
with the deceptive illusion of satisfaction, which says just a few more things, and if we try just a little harder, then I can grab a hold of it all by myself. That's not the case. And that brings us to our final point, the divine source of satisfaction. Turning back to John 6, in verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. So you want to know what to do? This is what you need to do, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's the work. The work is to believe in Jesus Christ. The work is to put your faith in Christ. And then you will receive eternal life, joyful life, abundant life. That's what you need to do. Verse 30, So they said to Him, Then... What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? They, see, they still don't get They want another sign. They want another miracle. Okay, you want us to put our faith in you? We need a little more convincing. What sign will you do? You know what? Jesus has done nothing but sign after sign after sign. They've seen the signs. They've enjoyed the signs. They were among the 5,000 who enjoyed the bread and the fish. Had their stomachs filled. But it's not enough. It's not enough. They need another meal. They need another iPhone. They need another whatever. It's not enough. What what sign will you do? Then it's fascinating. They said, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. By the way, this, this suggestion doesn't come out of anywhere. They said, Hey, when we were in the wilderness... Moses provided us with bread every single day. So I'll tell you what, if you give us bread every single day is the implication, then we'll believe in you. Just feed us every single day. So every single day, we'll come to you. We'll sit down in groups of 10 or 12 like we, like we did the other day and, and you'll thank God and you'll, you'll do that neat little trick that you do and you'll pass out bread and, and we'll enjoy and, and we'll believe in you. That, that's what we do. It'll be a great partnership. You do miracles and and we'll believe in you. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. It wasn't Moses. It really was the Father who fed them. And then He said, For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's, He's redirecting them. He's helping them to see that what Moses did was really a sign that the Father feeds the people with bread. And then they say, Sir, give us this bread always, which shows that they still don't get it. They still don't understand what the Father is offering them. So then Jesus says bluntly in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. So Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Feast on Me, which means come to Me and believe in Me. And then you know what we see happening a little later in the passage? People leave in droves. Isn't that sad? 
Jesus says, here it is, the true bread from heaven that Moses couldn't give you. The true bread is now right here. You want to be satisfied like never before. Feast on me and the people leave. G.K. Chesterton once said, the problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found lacking, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. I think many people look at this promise of Jesus and they think it's just too good to be true. Just too good to be true. Maybe you're thinking, that's just too good to be true. Believe in Jesus. Come to Jesus. No. He can't really satisfy me, can He? And I want to say to you, He can satisfy you. George MacDonald, the Scottish Christian writer novelist, some of you are familiar with him. He lived in the 1800s. He had a large family and one day he was talking with one of his older sons and he was waxing eloquent about the glories of the Kingdom of God, about the glories of the Gospel and how God Himself is our Father through Jesus Christ and how Jesus is our Lord and our Savior and our brother. And he was painting this awesome picture of the Kingdom when his son interrupted him and said, Father, what you're saying is too good to be true. George MacDonald looked right at his son and said, No, son, it is just so good, it must be true. And I want to say to you, it is so good, it must be true. It is true. Millions upon millions have turned to Christ and feasted upon Him and found that He is taking care of that thirst in the depths of their souls. For a long time, God's been challenging people and saying, come to Me. This is what we read in Isaiah 55. Another one of those great invitations. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Sounds just like John 6, doesn't it? God is saying, come to Me. You're thirsty? There it is. See? Are you thirsty? Come to Me. Come to the waters. Come to the wine. Come to the milk. Are you thirsty? Water, wine, milk. Come to Me. All you who are thirsty, stop laboring for that which is not bread. That which doesn't satisfy. And then the prophet says, listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. And then the prophet does away with the metaphors and we see God saying, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Then after a while, God does away with the metaphors. And He says, Come to Me and I will satisfy you. Jesus is coming. He says, Come to Me and I will satisfy you. You will never hunger. You will never thirst again. That's the invitation. Why did Christ come down from heaven? So that He could assuage our raging and inextinguishable thirst. And again, every single one of us is diligently pursuing this satisfaction. We, we can't help but pursue it because it's part of our hearts. 
But we need to be careful because there is really a deceptive illusion about satisfaction where we think it's found in the things of this world. And we really do need God to open our eyes so that we can see the divine source of satisfaction found only in Jesus Christ. And I challenge you today to feast upon Christ, to come to Him, and He will satisfy you. So many throughout the history of the ages have testified that He satisfies like nothing in this world can. Let me close with one more story about another author. By contrast, this author came to a different conclusion about fulfillment. He went down a similar road as Guy. He lived a life of confusion and aimlessness. His own autobiography is a sordid tale. In his own words, he subtitled his life, A Chronicle of Wasted Years. He too was pleasure-driven at times to the bazaar, but the splendor of Christ finally won him over. His name is Malcolm Muggeridge, one of England's most articulate journalists. And this is how he summed up his pursuit of pleasure. He said, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together and they are nothing. Less than nothing. A positive impediment measured against one drought of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty irrespective of who or what they are. What a statement. Malcolm Muggeridge, I've enjoyed so much that this world has to offer, but I want you to know, and I love that, I beg you to know, it's nothing. It's an impediment. It just gets in the way. Wouldn't trade all the things in this world that I've achieved for one drought of water that's found in Christ. And that's what Jesus offers all of us. He says, come to Me and I will satisfy you in a way that you've never been satisfied. That's the challenge. In the word of the psalmist, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that as we pursue satisfaction in our souls, that You open us, open our eyes so that we can see how we've been led astray by the paths of this world. And thank You that we are led to the true source of satisfaction, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for each one of us that we will turn to Him, that we will drink deeply of the fountain of living water, that we will feast upon Him and find that He truly is the bread of life. In His name we pray.
Amen.